The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The word of God for the people of God. Well, uh, Steve said it well in that video. We're all living a story. You're here this morning in the middle of your story. And the big challenge for us is what does it mean for us to find God's story and find out how our story fits in that bigger story? That's what draws us together on a Sunday morning like this. What, what unites us in this room, the reason we're here, is because a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived and died and rose from the dead in the first century AD. Jesus, the evidence for his life and ministry is historical fact, and we're here because his life and death and resurrection has implications for our lives. It changes our story. And so every Sunday when we get together, we open the scriptures, we consider what they have to teach us about the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we explore, what does that mean for our lives? How ought we to live in light of that? How does that change our story? How does it change how we embrace and walk through whatever it is we're walking through this week, this month, this year? And so right now, we're studying the book of Ephesians together and, and learning about the renewal of everything in Jesus. That's sort of the tagline for this series. And uh, by the way, if we haven't met yet, my name's Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'd love to meet you. And so if we haven't had a chance to connect, come and introduce yourself after the service. I'd love to get to know you and hear your story a little bit. Uh, we come this morning to a turning point in the book of Ephesians. So chapters one through three and chapters four through six sort of make up the two halves of this book in the New Testament of the Bible. And chapters one through three are primarily theological. They're primarily talking to us about what God has done in Jesus. And chapters four through six are mainly practical. They're telling us, hey, in light of what God has done, then here's what you should do. Here's how you should live. Here's how this impacts your life in the world. And so the beginning of chapter four is sort of that hinge, that turning point in the text. And so what that means is the sermons for the past few months have been highly theological, just unpacking for us. What has God done in Jesus? The sermons over the next couple of months are going to be very practical. Hey, let's talk about it. what does that mean for us? How does that change our life 
in the world. And you're going to need to keep that shift in your mind because uh, all the things we talk about in the next few months that relate to sort of our practical existence in the world, all that is grounded in the first three chapters of Ephesians, what God has done in Jesus, what God is doing in the world to renew all things in and through Jesus. And so our thinking and our preaching over the next few months is going to be very practical. It's going to be very sort of nitty gritty. Let's talk about how this then shapes our life together. So let me ask you a very practical question this morning. Here's my very down to earth practical question. What do you want the church to be? What do you wish the church was? What in your mind is a picture of what the church should be? And the second question I want to ask is, how committed are you to helping the church be what it should be? What's interesting about those two questions is, all of us have an answer to the first question, and we often don't ask the second question, right? And the reason is because we are shaped by a cultural environment that's very individualistic and that's very consumeristic. And even if we're aware of that, and even if we know that, that's still sort of the, the water that we swim in. That's what shapes our thinking about life and about everything we enjoy and engage in. And so we tend to think, first of all, about what does this mean for me? What would it mean for me to be part of this thing? Or what do I want from this thing? And then we tend to think in a consumerist way about, is this delivering what I want it to deliver? And so when we come to think about what we want the church to be, oftentimes we're asking, what do I need it to be for me? And... Is it delivering on what I need it to be for me? Oftentimes, what we're not asking is, and what's my part in helping the church become what it should be? And that's the kind of practical question the book of Ephesians wants to put before us. One of the things the, the next few chapters of Ephesians want to do is to challenge us in what it means for us to be committed to the flourishing, the thriving of the local church. What role, what part do we have to play in helping a real, particular, specific local church become what the Lord wants it to be? So I'll just tell you at the out front, I say this in every gathering we have to talk about the church here at Quarmdale, whether it's this local church or some other local church, I just want you to be connected to and committed to the flourishing of a local church. I want you to care about the people of God and the church of God and how you, your, your role in making that what it should be. So let me read you a quote from Ray Ortland that sort of sets the stage for us this morning. Here's what he wants to remind us. Your church is more than a collection of people who happen to get together on Sundays. You could attend a big Christian event for a mere get-together. There might be a wonderful magic in the air. But does anything corporate last once the event is over and everyone walks out? Let's say you meet someone at that Christian event. You really like the person. Two weeks later, you happen to run into that person at a coffee shop, not a Scooters, but some other place. <laughs> That's heartwarming. But it is only in a church that we are members of Christ and of one another, moving forward together like a well-coordinated body. That's what your church is. Ground zero for the new kind of community that Christ is creating in the world today for the display of his glory. 
There is no churchless Christianity in the Bible. Let me read that line again. There is no churchless Christianity in the Bible. We individualistic Americans need to face that. God is building a new community, and it's worth belonging to. God is building a new community. That's the thing we need to keep in mind. God is not just saving individual human beings. God is building a people. And the goal of that people is to show the world what human life can be like, a new way of being human. See, when people ask, is Christianity true? Does the gospel of Jesus actually matter? They should be able to look at the church and see the answer. Especially in our day and age, nobody is going to believe the truth of the gospel unless they can see it lived out somewhere. Unless they can say, show me what this does in real people. That's what the church is designed to be. And so I want you to see and care about how important the health of the local church is. How important our life together is. You probably know people who are skeptical of the message of the gospel. And what I've found is it's usually not because they have problems with Jesus. It's usually because they've experienced dysfunction in the church among God's people. And so it matters that the church of Jesus Christ is a place where the truth of the gospel is lived out. And what that means is the church must be a place of relational beauty. That's a phrase I think I stole from Ray Ortland. I stole it from someone. It's not my phrase. Relational beauty. I think it's a great way of capturing what God is after among his people. He wants us to be a place of relational beauty, a community where the real flourishing of human relationships is experienced and seen and lived out. So here's the simple big idea I want to convince you of this morning. The church must be a place of relational beauty, and that requires something of you. There's a role for you to play in making it that way. So, Here's the outline I want to follow. I want to talk about where relational beauty begins, what relational beauty requires, and why relational beauty matters. We're going to use that theme of relational beauty. That's what we're after. That's what we're aiming at. Where does it begin? What does it require? Why does it matter? So let's look first at where relational beauty begins. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. If you have a Bible, take a look at it with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll see it on the screen behind me. I, therefore. Now, as Pastor Aaron taught us a few weeks ago, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, what do you ask? What's it there for? In this case, it's there as the hinge, okay? This is how we know we're turning from chapters one through three, mainly theological, to chapters four through six. Hey, in light of all this truth about what God has done in Jesus, therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Listen, if you want one verse from the Bible that can guide and direct your whole life, there it is. What a great summary of a life given to Jesus. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In this invitation... 
in this urging from the Apostle Paul, and especially in this idea of calling, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? In this idea of calling, there's sort of two nesting ideas. There's salvation and there's vocation. Let me explain how they fit together. First of all, you are called to salvation in Jesus. The word calling is often used in the Bible to describe what happens in your soul when God awakens you to your sin and draws you to faith in Jesus. Let me show you two places in particular that speak of this. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Describing what God has done for us in Christ, he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Likewise, in Galatians chapter one, Paul narrates for us the story of his own conversion. And here's what he says. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, then he goes on to describe what his life looked like after that. So notice he says, I was a persecutor of the church. I was opposed to the people of God, but then God called me by his grace. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, the same thing has happened to you. God has called you to himself. He has drawn you by his grace effectually to Christ. He has brought you from darkness to light, from sin to salvation, from death to life. And as a result of that calling to salvation, you now have a new calling. We sometimes speak of calling in terms of like what I do in the world, the thing I give my energy to, my vocation. In the same way, in light of the fact that you're called to faith in Jesus, you're now called to a certain kind of vocation in the world, a certain kind of calling. You're now a part of this new people that Jesus is building. You're called into the body of Christ and you're called to build it up and strengthen it and help it thrive. So, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the grace you've been shown. And walk in a manner worthy of the people you belong to, the new community that Jesus is building. Occasionally, when our kids were growing up, uh, we would say to them sometimes, hey, that's not how thunes behave. What we're trying to reinforce there is to say, hey, you're part of a family. Like, you bear a name. And we want to exist in the world in a certain way. We want to be known for certain things, and we don't want to be known for other things. That's not how we do things. That's what this verse is saying to you. Hey, you belong to Christ, and you belong to the people of Christ. And so walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Walk in a manner that shows the beauty of his grace to you, and that shows what it means to be part of his people. This is where relational beauty begins. It starts with each of us, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. 
Like it doesn't do us any good to think about how do we make the church, you know, look more like God wants it to look unless each one of us individually is committed to walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. It's got to start with each of us saying, I- I'm committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want my life to reflect that. I want to be among the people that are going to help me live in that way. So I just want to pause here for a minute and invite the Holy Spirit to challenge each one of us. Let me ask you this question. Where are you not walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Where does there need to be in your life, in your story, change, repentance, new life, new obedience? So we see where relational beauty begins. It begins with us walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Let's look now at what relational beauty requires. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So these verses are giving us five virtues that are essential to relational beauty. Or to say it another way, they're giving us five character qualities we need to intentionally cultivate in order to be the kind of people God wants us to be. Or to say it another way, relational beauty ain't going to just happen. There is no community in the world where you just throw some people in a room And it's going to be beautiful. It's going to take intentionality and effort. We've got to cultivate certain virtues. And that's what this text is giving us. What is this kind of relational beauty going to require of us? So let's look at all five of these virtues. First, it says, with all humility. What is humility? This word literally speaks of a posture of lowliness. I think it was C.S. Lewis who famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility is naturally others-centered. Here's how Philippians 2 verse 3 describes it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what humility does. It counts others more significant than myself. One theologian calls humility a life ordered to the service of others. Humility says, how can I serve you? How can I make you thrive? How can I help further what God is doing in your life? It's the opposite of self-will and self-assertion and self-promotion. Second trait that's given here, with all humility and gentleness. The the Greek word used here could also be translated courtesy. Isn't that a great word? It's the opposite of roughness, harshness, gruffness, sharpness. The great philosopher Aristotle was one of the first philosophers to, to write about virtue And he saw all virtues as a mean between two extremes. So he would say there was two vices and virtue is the opposite of both. 
Virtue is the mean between these two extremes. And when he wrote about gentleness, or the word that's uh, translated gentleness here, he said that it's the mean between anger and indifference. Gentleness is something different than anger. It's also something different than indifference. Some of us think, you know, the answer to my anger is just to be apathetic about stuff. Nope. Gentleness is something different than both. One of the most famous invitations of the Lord Jesus Christ is in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The words gentle and lowly in that invitation from Jesus are the exact same two words translated humility and gentleness here in Ephesians 4. You want to be like Jesus? Be humble and gentle. How do you become this way? By being united with Jesus who is himself gentle and lowly. The third virtue listed is patience. The word used here literally means to have a long fuse. That's what it means. It means you're not quickly offended. In fact, if you read the book of Proverbs, you know what it says? It says a fool is quick to be offended. A wise person, slow to be offended. When someone does something relationally hurtful towards you, instead of retaliating or nursing bitterness, Patience means you are able to bear up, you endure, you persevere in relationship with that person. That gets us to this next phrase, bearing with one another in love. The word bearing with literally means enduring relational difficulty. What it means is we're staying with this. We're not quitting. We're going to keep working on it. We're going to keep working it out. We're not giving up on one another. We're not avoiding one another. We're not just going to leave and go to another gospel community where I don't have to see you anymore. We're going to work it out. We're going to persist. We're going to bear with one another in love. Now listen, the challenge with this is a lot of us haven't seen this modeled very well, right? Like some of us grew up in families where we didn't bear with one another in love. Some of us had friends who, instead of bearing with us through difficulty, just sort of peaced out and abandoned us. And we live in a culture that says, hey, if someone offends you, cut that person off. Find a new friend. When I think of what it means to bear with one another, I think of that famous question that Peter asked Jesus. You know, he said, hey, how often should we forgive someone who sins against us? Like seven times? Is that good? And if you think about that, like, think about how frustrating it is when someone sins against you in exactly the same way seven times. Like, that's actually a lot of times. If you went to gospel community seven weeks in a row and the same person said the same obnoxious thing to you seven times, you'd be like, hey, this uh, this can't go on. But what does Jesus say? He says, actually, Peter, 70 times seven. Like, actually... We bear with one another in love beyond what seems humanly possible. How? Through the grace of God. 
in the church, we stay committed to working it out. Bearing with one another in love, and then that leads into this final phrase, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I like that word eager. What it's saying is like, hey, we're fighting hard for unity. We're working toward peace. We're not gonna just be passive when there's conflict or difficulty or tension or people aren't getting along. We're gonna, we're gonna work hard to be united. We're gonna strive to protect, maintain, guard the unity of the spirit. So humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to preserve unity. This is what relational beauty requires. We're not going to get it apart from cultivating these virtues. We have to become these kinds of people. So how do these virtues get built? How do we become people who are more humble, more gentle, more patient, who bear with one another in love, who are eager to preserve unity? How do we become these kind of people? Here's the answer. Not in isolation. You do not become more patient by going on a solitude retreat and reading a lot of books about patience so you can come back and impress us with the new skills and patience that you learned. It's not how it works. The way we grow is in community with one another by actually having to be patient by actually having to grow in gentleness and humility, by having to bear with one another in love. We grow in these things in community. That's how this works. So let me ask you this question. What if you stopped looking at the church as a community of perfection and started looking at it as a work in progress? How might that change things? Some of us have unrealistic expectations for community. We read verses like Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, and we read them like an advertisement for a product we might think about buying. Like we read it like this. Oh, okay, so if I go to a church, what I'm going to find there is a people who are perfectly humble, gentle, patient, bear with one another in love, and are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. That sounds great, sign me up for that. I wanna to go to that church. And then we go there, and as soon as someone falls short of that idea, we're like, well, I mean, I guess this place is messed up. Fail, they didn't live up to their advertisement. Listen to me, this verse is not an advertisement of what the church is. It's a blueprint for what the church should be. Because none of us are a finished product. The church is not a finished product. It's not till the new heavens and the new earth. So this is not an advertisement for what is. It's a blueprint for what should be. And guess what? You're part of the construction team. Like, get your hammer and, you know, your tools. We got work to do. This is what we get to build together. And it's fun to invest in the church in that way to say, hey, here's the blueprint. This is what we should be. We're going to fall short of it. So let's work on it together. Let's keep aiming at this ideal. Let's keep growing and pursuing this kind of community. As you know, we're doing some construction work in this building right now. And every Wednesday at 2.30 is a meeting that's an owner, architect, contractor meeting. Sometimes I attend. Other times I send someone else in my place. 
But at that meeting, here's what we do. It's the owner, that's us, Cormdale Church. It's the architect, it's the contractor. And what we do is we pull out the plans and we say, hey, how are we doing on executing these plans? And you know what happens in that meeting every week? It's like, you know what? Some guy tore down the wrong wall. <laughs> Some electrician put in the wrong plug there. You know what? They hung that door frame backwards. Guess what? No big deal, because that's how construction goes. And in that meeting, we're just there to go like, yeah, yeah, okay, well, let's fix that, because the plan says this. When we uh, did the downstairs hallway, right before we were gonna open it all up, we realized, oh, we painted it the wrong color because somebody read the, read the plans wrong. No big deal, just get the painters back out, repaint it, let's get it right, because we're all committed to the plan. Like what unites the owner and the architect and the contractors, we're all trying to work on this plan. We agree, we want it to look like this. So along the way, let's just keep fixing the mistakes, let's keep paying attention to where we've missed something and let's just work the plan. That's what this text is for the church. It's a blueprint that says, hey, here's what we get to build together. When we lack humility, gentleness, patience, when we're not doing a good job bearing with one another in love, when we're not eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, guess what? Let's go back to the plan. Let's recommit to this. Let's, let's rally around this again. Let's keep working on it. In this list, the virtue that most challenges me is gentleness. I'm not by nature a gentle person. I can be rough and gruff and harsh, especially when I'm frustrated or troubled or in a hurry or worried about something. Almost 20 years ago now, I was in a conversation with a couple of good friends and we were working on a project together that was important and we were having a, an honest conversation about where do we need to go and where are we falling short and what can we do better? And these two friends looked at me and they said, hey, Bob, it's not that you're wrong. It's just that you're kind of a jerk about it. <laughs> like what you see that we need to do is right. Like you're naming the right problem. It's just that the way you're doing it, it's, it's kind of harsh. And so I've been on a 20 year journey to grow in gentleness and it's a very slow journey. And there have been some epic failures along the way. But you know what's been amazing? It's been amazing doing it in the same community, in this church, for almost two decades. And alongside friends and elders in this church who love me enough to expect me to keep growing. And who can say like, hey, actually in that moment right there, you weren't very gentle. Can we give you that feedback? And who will also say, hey, in this situation, man, it's beautiful how you engage that. Keep going. Good work. The Spirit of God is doing good things and you keep it up. The church is a community of change. This is what we do with one another and for one another. This is what relational beauty requires is that we continue cultivating and growing in these five virtues. So let me ask you, of those five, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, pursuing unity, which one needs the most development in your life? And I'll go a step further. And would you go talk with your gospel community about that this week? So one thing to like take some notes right now and be like, humility, really need to grow in that. And then go on your solitude retreat and read some books about humility, <laughs> right? 
It's another thing to say, oh, hey, friends, you know where I need to grow? This virtue. And then for them to go, oh, well, cool. We know how to pray for you and hold you accountable now. And actually, when we experience a need for growth there, can we say so? And when we see you growing in that, can we encourage you? Like, that's how this actually gets worked out. All of us love growing in isolation where only we can see our failures. What God wants for us is to grow in community where we can work on it together. So we've seen where relational beauty begins. We've seen what it requires. Let's look finally at why relational beauty matters. Verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, these verses are giving you the why behind the what. Why does relational beauty matter? Because if the church is not a place of relational beauty, then we're saying something false about the gospel. That's why. See, verses four through six are telling you what's actually true. What's actually true because of what God has done in Jesus Christ is that there is, that's a statement of ontology, fact. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What word do you hear repeated over and over again? One. As Pastor Aaron preached so well a few weeks ago, in Jesus, God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and made us one in Christ. Like that's actually what Christ has done when he died for our sins and when he drew us to himself is he's made us all one. And so if that oneness is not displayed in our actual relationships together, we're saying something false about the gospel. We're undoing what we preach by how we live together. There's a disconnect between what we're preaching and what we're living. And so this is why relational beauty matters. It matters because the church is saying something about who God is, about who Jesus Christ is, about who the Holy Spirit is, about what the gospel is. And we want what we are saying in our life together to match what we profess together in our worship. Here's Ray Ortland again. The way we live together in our churches grows out of what we believe together. Gospel-centered churches are living proof that the good news is true. That Jesus is not a theory, but is real. As he gives us back our humanness. In its doctrine and culture, such a church makes visible the restored humanity only Christ can give. Relational beauty in the church matters because a church is to be living proof that the good news is true. We want our life together to make visible the restored humanity that only Christ can give. And see, it's this good news, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's that good news that actually gives us the power to cultivate the virtues expressed in verses two and three. Like, what do you do when you don't really want to bear with someone anymore? Have you gotten to that place in any of your relationships where it's like, you know what? I'm kind of just done with this person. 
Maybe they'll move to another city. Maybe they'll move to another gospel community. Maybe, maybe we just don't need to work on this relationship any further. What do you do when you get to that place and that person's a fellow Christian and they're in church with you? You know what you do? You go back to the truth of the gospel. You go back to the fact, well, listen, there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. Jesus has actually made us one. And so grounded in that truth, I gotta keep working for unity. I gotta keep working for relational harmony. I gotta let that truth of what Jesus has done animate me into a renewed commitment to this person and to relational beauty. That's how it works. We come back to this good news, this gospel truth, as a way to actually continue to motivate us and empower us to do the work we need to do to cultivate humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The church must be a place of relational beauty. Like this is a, this is a must. And you have a part to play in that. That requires something of you. So I hope that you feel this morning a renewed call from the scriptures and from the spirit of God that, hey, these verses are for us. God wants your church, whether it's Cormdale Church or some other church, he wants it to be a place of relational beauty, a place where the good news of the gospel is expressed in our actual relationships. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let's pray that God would give us the grace to pursue that together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that there is one body, one spirit, one hope to which we are called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We proclaim this morning that all of that is true. That's who you are. That's what you have done in Jesus. And so we ask this morning that you would renew our desire and our commitment to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Father, for the sake of our city, for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our neighborhoods, we want to be a people that display true human beauty. When the world is asking, where can I go to find real, deep, meaningful relationship across difference, we want to be the answer to that question. And for that, we need your grace. We need the renewal of your Holy Spirit. We need your conviction. We need you to help us repent of our sin and grow toward one another. We need your help to cultivate humility and gentleness and patience, to bear with one another in love. So Father, thank you for the ways we have had opportunities to display that together. Would you allow us to excel still more? Would you renew our commitment 
to pursuing this kind of relational beauty? Would you make us a fitting representation of the kind of human community that the gospel creates? We ask you to do this for our good. We ask you to do it for your glory. Amen.